Hey there, welcome to Broadcast to Post. I'm Jeff Sengpil, CTO at Keycode Media. This is the show where we interview leaders and experts in the AV, broadcast, and post-production spaces. We're giving you the inside tips to grow your media workflows and business today. Uh, let's get into uh, what drives their workflows and where they see this industry going. Um, we're going to do some introductions first. Uh, we're going to start with Josh Lahai. LaHaye? LaHaye. LaHaye. Yep. Yep. Yeah, my fault. And Austin Cook from the Spring Hill Company. Uh, you guys get to work with folks like LeBron, <laughs> Maverick. Because um, in, in, if you don't know Spring Hill, they were, it was founded by LeBron James and Maverick Carter. Who? LeBron James. He is a star basketball player with the Los Angeles Lakers. Yep. <laughs> so, um, gentlemen, thanks for coming. And I, I believe Thank we've you. got a. You want to say a couple quick things, and then we got a clip that we can roll. Sure. Oh, you want to? Oh, okay. I'll yeah. say some things. Sorry. <laughs> I'm Austin Cook from the Spring Hill Company, uh, director of post there. We are a multifaceted um, production company. We do everything from one-minute social pieces to long-form documentaries and features, even Super Bowl commercials. That one was fun. Uh, you guys remember the one where LeBron was talking to young, young, young LeBron? Yeah, that one was. Yeah, that one was fun. Um, but we don't really consider ourselves to be a production company. We think of ourselves more as a media company that tries to create, you know, content around athlete empowerment and uh, cultural discourse. And during COVID, uh, we experienced like exponential growth, and we had to really pivot and find a way to develop remote workflows to uh, accommodate remote and on-prem editing in a hybrid environment. And we ended up bringing most of Post in-house during that time. Awesome, thanks, guys. And I'm uh, Josh LaHaye, the media manager at the Spring Hill Company. So it's been great to partner with Austin on this variety of content that we create, like he said, from commercial work to pilots to episodic content to feature films as well. Um, and so for me, we're bringing in tons of media and different types of media every single day. Um, right now, we've got probably about two petabytes of media total. Uh, so it's a lot to manage and a lot of different pieces of shared storage. Um, and so, yeah, it's been a pleasure working on a variety of different content um, and getting into the nitty gritty of kind of our technology workflows and kind of our hybrid workflow as well. Thanks, guys. I, I believe we've got a clip. Let's go ahead and roll that in. I want to be a scientist. I grew up melancholy because I ain't realized that the hemoglobin in my skin was connected to a lineage. Damn, I wore that. Don't be afraid to take chances. LeBron and Maverick had my back. We need that advocacy. We got a fan back there. All right, moving on. Uh, Manisha Madison, you're a virtual producer, virtual production producer with Final Pixel. A little bit about yourself, and then we, I think we've got a clip for you, too. We do. Yeah, my name's, uh, it's actually Manisha Madison Lever. My husband will be a little ticked off if I leave that last one off. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm virtual production producer at Final Pixel. We're a global studio that specializes in uh, what we call Mandalorian-style virtual production. 
Um, so it's bringing the convergence of some really cool technologies together, camera tracking, um, game engine. We use specifically Unreal Engine and um, LED walls and then mixing it together with um, practical foreground sets to create this illusion like you are anywhere in the universe that you might wanna be. Um, we do that primarily for advertising clients. It's a technology and form of production that's used widely in film. TV's catching on and advertising is the next wave that can really start embracing this style of production. Awesome. Thanks, Manisha, for being here. And I believe we've got a clip for you. Dancing. It's written in the stars. Family to me are the people that show you unconditional love and support. Dancing with the Stars will blow you away. Nice. I think we're going to be getting one of those walls over there soon, so I'm, I'm looking forward to that, being able to do the really cool stuff. Uh, speaking of really cool stuff, Michael Cioni's here. He's from our friends at Adobe. Um, he's the senior director of global innovation, working with the Frame.io team. Uh, Michael and I have known each other for quite a few years. Uh, Michael, tell me a little bit about yourself and what's going on. Yeah, the division is Frame.io and the new parent company is Adobe. We're proud to be a part of that. And we're really just trying to connect uh, people on set to the editors. And that's really this connection that for uh, 100 years has really never been that tight. Film, tape, digital, there's still this disconnect. And it's really been my passion for uh, my career to try to connect those together. So. Uh, the clip that we'll look at is sort of the latest and greatest in camera to cloud technology, where we really want to see cameras connecting. And the, the, the video you see here is a representation of the newest form of camera to cloud, which is actually only about 10 days old. So this is uh, the latest firmware with our friends at RED, connecting Frame.io and Adobe and RED together. Awesome. Let's, let's take a look. The world's fastest workflow, powered by the cloud, built inside the camera. Introducing Frame.io, now fully integrated into Red V Raptor and V Raptor XL. Securely connect V Raptor and V Raptor XL directly to your Frame.io account in seconds. Alrighty, let's roll camera. Shoot ProRes proxies directly to Frame.io right from the camera. This means all available clip metadata is automatically delivered to your choice of editing software, like Premiere Pro, 
so relinking proxies to AK RAW files will always be perfect. With FrameIO integrated into Red V Raptor, you can now set the camera to shoot off-speed frame rates. And for the first time ever, shoot AK RAW directly into the cloud, making it possible to capture and share R3Ds to post-production without hard drives. For the first time in history, you can shoot, upload, edit, review, and deliver your content without ever having to download in the field. Less time, more secure, unparalleled control. Frame.io Camera to Cloud, now inside Red V Raptor and V Raptor XL, available today. Very cool. I think that's why we've got one right here. <laughs> All right, let's let's get into it. Um, workflow: you got capture slash ingest or the cloud, um, editing, delivery, basic blocks of production. It's changed radically over the last couple of years. Let's break down a few parts of the workflow and how your production or technology uh, has evolved in the past few years. So let's get started with camera ingest and file management. Someone wanted to take a jump at that first. I think I'd probably be the best person to talk about that. Cool. Um, yeah, so to get started, you know, uh, I mentioned earlier we work on such a diverse group of content, right? So um, any day I could be getting in red footage, I could be getting in Canon footage, Alexa footage, um, you know, Venice footage. Uh, so it really, really depends. Um, and for us, that really starts on identifying, you know, what kind of cameras we're shooting on, right? And for us, we do have an on-prem and a hybrid workflow, so we still have to, you know, uh, have normal drives, right? SSDs that we use that need to go to set. So even today, we were uh, I was identifying how many drives we need for an episode of The Shop, which was on HBO. It's a talk show with LeBron James. Um, and that was me identifying that, you know, we're going to have 10 Alexas uh, on a shoot, right? And what is the media that's going to be involved for that? Um, so for me, that's you know, identifying what that's going to look like, how many drives we need, what the price of that's going to be, and really budgeting that out. Um, if we're doing something uh, a little bit more involved, we may be doing uh, something with uh, like Media Shuttle, for example, from Signiant, right? And so a lot of times, you know, we'll have a shoot that could be in New York or somewhere else across the country, and that's going to be having someone upload that directly to our server. Um, so that can be really efficient sometimes, or leveraging a tool like Camera to Cloud, which we have done on a couple uh, of our shows as well. Um, so that obviously quickens the pace, right? But sometimes we have a really large volume of media and we have to do it kind of old school with drives. And um, that's kind of, you know, the DIT on set using ShotPut Pro to have, you know, check some verification and, you know, make sure that all of our media is copied properly that's sending the drives back to us and me ingesting onto our shared storage, um, you know, usually with Hedge, um, and then making sure that all that is safe, right? And, you know, from there, that's making sure we have the right taxonomies, the right nomenclature and naming for our media as well. Um, and ideally hoping that our DITs in the field are going to follow that process, which, uh, you know, doesn't always go as planned, but, um, you know, it's nice to enforce, uh, you know, a nice media log process where, you know, we want them to be buttoned up as possible, uh, as best as possible on set so we don't have those issues, you know, once we get that back at the office. Um, but for us, it's been great to leverage things like Camera to Cloud, 
um, like even having uh, you know, a cam op upload our content right to frame. Um, sometimes that'll happen so that we can download right away back at our office um, and start cutting as soon as possible. Um, you know, if, if camera to cloud isn't the right or the best solution. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a good breakdown. Awesome. Well, the word taxonomy, that, that excites some people. Uh, let's, let's put a pin in that. We're going to get back to that because that's asset management, which is a part we're going to get into. Uh, anyone else have anything else on um, camera ingest and file management? I know, Michael, you'll have a, a few things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say what, what Josh is describing is an, a perfect example of a very organized, modern workflow. And um, the good news is that we all have a lot of those experiences. And I think a deeper dive into how you do it is, is, is something everyone can benefit from because you have so much. And you talked about the variations of cameras. What I want everyone to visualize for a second is that closet you have at home that's full of old Lacey and G-Tech drives you don't know what to do with. <laughs> like that scene in Uncle Buck where they open the door and the basket, everything falls out, right? We all have that problem. And you have that problem too. It's probably better than a closet, but it's, it's air conditioned, but it's a problem. It's, it's a closet. And what, okay. <laughs> Maybe it is. And, and I think what, we, what, 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 what Josh is talking about is about how we're dealing with media today. And what I'm focused on is how we're gonna deal with media in 10 years. And I think most people could say, I don't think we're going to have hard drives in 10 years. And you'd be correct. We're not going to have them. They'll be in data centers, and it'll all be remote. And so the data actually won't have to be something that you have to have locally. So you won't have to worry actually that much about bandwidth, because bandwidth to you is just a blinking screen. A, a, a computer screen is just going to be blinking lights. It's not about bandwidth. It doesn't take much to display something to look at. So you don't have to have the media local. So that's good. And then you don't have to worry about having to maintain all those disks and, and figure out where things are. But how do we pay for it? And when Josh started talking, he talked about figuring out the calculated costs of how much things are going to cost in order to prepare for an upcoming shoot. Well, doing that based on local storage is something we're acclimated to. Doing that in the cloud, not only are we not acclimated to it, we barely can afford it today. Cloud storage is more expensive than local storage, but it's superior in almost every way except for price per gigabyte. So we're going to see that relationship change because we might all remember we had the same relationship with cell phones 20 years ago, right? It was superior to landlines, but it cost too much. And then it changed, right? Or technology with video game consoles, too expensive. Then they came down and the quality went up, right? So when the technology gets adopted in large enough groups of people, it forces the economy of scale to pivot so that you eventually hit a tipping point where quality goes up, it becomes more affordable, and it kills the incumbent. Today, we're sort of on hard drives, and we use a little bit of cloud. Mm -hmm. 10 years, it'll be all cloud and a little bit of hard drives. And that's sort of what I'm focused on. So show of hands, who's got a landline? <laughs> a couple landlines. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe 10%, maybe, maybe. So the, the, the analogy holds, we, we've, we've gotten rid of it. And my landline can't get to Google. Um, and also, I saw a giant closet this morning full of drives down on the west side. We walked in and went, oh, this, is, sad, a pro this is a problem. <laughs> yeah. And they said it's just a year's worth of client drives. Like, oh. Just one year? Just one year. Oh, boy. Yeah. And it, Especially when it gets obsolete, you cannot read the old drive. Yeah. Well, and, and when you plug the drive in, 
is it going to turn on? Yeah. That's <laughs> that's one of the things. It's spinning. It's yeah. yeah, the click of death. Clicking with speed drive. Anyone else have anything they want to share about capture and uh, and the ingest and the file management side? We can move on. All right, taxonomy. I said we were going to put a pin mm -hmm. in there. Mm -hmm. So um, nomenclature is one of those fun things that people don't really think about. Um, and I, the funny thing is, over the last year, I think I've said this a few times in front of people. Um, we don't have good data management, and I blame our nation's schools because we don't we don't think about these things. Um, and data management is one of these pieces that we, who handle tons of data, suddenly realize no one knows how to do this. So, what do you see in terms of um, asset management, uh, media management, really? Um, and what does metadata do for you today? You want to start with that one, or I don't. Okay. No. Well, we'll, we'll I am out. a producer. I do all the fun stuff and talk to clients. Let's talk exactly. to the people smarter than me. Austin, what do you think about metadata? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's something that is kind of hard to wrap your head around when you have lots of data that doesn't have metadata. And you know, of course, we're trying to figure out ways to generate it using AI tools, which you know are getting more popular and hopefully at some point cheaper. Um, but also, it's a way that you can monetize future data. You know, so we've been making content for about seven years. We have lots of stuff. Is that going to sit there forever, or is that going to be useful in a documentary about LeBron James that comes out 30 years from now? Um, if you have all this data but no metadata, how do you find that? How do you figure out what's going to work? Um, so that's why you got to start working on your metadata while your company is still young. Invest in a MAM or a DAM, which uh, Josh is going to talk more about. But uh, if you don't start soon, it's going to be a Herculean effort to rectify in the future. Yep. It's, it's one of those things that if you, if you don't start now and you don't tag it now, we can throw a lot of people at it later and it will cost you a lot of money. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it could be done, but it's going to cost you. Get some unpaid interns, maybe. <laughs> yeah. uh, un unpaid interns don't exist anymore. That's, that's part of the problem. Um, we're going to get to the media manager last. Mm -hmm. Asset management. Yeah, you know, the, um, I think Austin said it really well. He said if, it helps when you're a young company to get in and get ahead of it earlier than waiting for the end. When I think about in your world, it's, it's, it's a pretty big machine that you've got going. But think about the wedding photographer. Think mm -hmm. about the, the small agency, the mom and pop, you know, or the e-commerce people. They have the exact same problem, and I bet... By, by percentage of volume, it's the same amount of problem because they're going to shoot less footage, but there's only one of them or two of them. Mm -hmm. And I bet it's the same for percentage of disaster that they're awaiting, oh, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. A little secret, too. I, I used to do weddings, and uh, I have used footage from other weddings inside my wedding videos for a different wedding. Sometimes you need that shot. <laughs> I, wish, I wish that I took care of metadata as much as I, you know, do now, sort of. I like that. Who's she? I don't know who she is. But that's, uh, that's, it's a good example where I think this problem is not a media and entertainment enterprise class problem. It's, a, it's anybody that has a camera problem or anybody that has a microphone problem. The right. bloggers and the vloggers, they're recording all that audio. How do you find that subject, especially when you can't even see it? A waveform is never going to tell you how to find a comment that was said in audio. You're a host. And so like, this is where 
the metadata tracking and tagging of assets needs to be uh, prioritized for the future of being able to create it. Plus, we all know that we create more media per year than we ever did. And every year, we will create more media than we did last year. Individuals, you know, look at your phone. If you were to look at how many photos you took this year, it's going to be more than the year before and more than the year before, and videos and so on. And so that's all going up. I do think that Apple is an example of where some metadata tagging, like geotagging or facial tagging. So at least you, you realize if you go to your phone now and you start searching like Coke, it'll start giving you things that you didn't tag. And it's at least helpful. But it's not that specific. It's pretty generic. And I think that's the type of stuff where we got to learn how to automate way better. Mm -hmm. And at Adobe, we have a company division called Sensei, which is really focused on trying to do that so our stock people and our analytics people can basically take that footage so that you don't have to tag it yourself, right? And I think that's where we can get people ahead is automation. I so, see the, if I may, just the creative solutions possibility for that too. As a producer, I started actually as a client for Travel Channel. This was way back in the day before anyone was tagging metadata in any way. And like, I was the metadata. Having been a PA looking through things, it was the like, we need to do a promo of people driving on a train. And it was all in my brain of like, I know Anthony Bourdain rode a train in Vietnam, and I know this happened there. And it was those creatives happen all the time. And it opens up so many creative opportunities to have that metadata from the beginning. Um, it's just such a good solution to expand creative ideas and make it so that these creative ideas can come to life. Definitely. The, the only difficulty is when you've got a person yeah. as your asset management solution, yeah. they can get hit by a winning lotto ticket yeah. and they don't care about your <laughs> data anymore. Or, you've lost all of that metadata. It's just gone. Um, so you probably have to do this a lot on your own, don't you? I do this a lot. I'm, I'm in the spreadsheets and we're working towards automating that, right? And I think that's the big picture thing we're talking about here is how do we not have interns inputting metadata into a spreadsheet and how do we automate that leveraging AI tools, right? You know, think of AWS as a recognition tool, you know, facial recognition, object recognition, obviously creating transcripts, which is something that we do every day. Um, that's big for us because, you know, uh, Michael mentioned earlier about, you know, the, um, you know, this can be at a small scale too, right? You think of that you know, wedding editor, right, that's trying to identify who's the best man at the wedding or who's, you know, who's the father of the bride, right? And a tool like, you know, recognitions, you know, facial recognition tool will be really helpful for stuff like that. And for us, especially when we work with so many celebrities, being able to identify across all of our content, you know, who is that basketball player? Um, who is that celebrity? Um, we want to pull up all the content that LeBron's in, right? And we want that to be searchable, we want that to be accessible, and we want that to be as easy and smooth as possible. And so we're, you know, we're headed in that direction. We're not totally there yet, but from kind of a metadata and taxonomy perspective, um, I can shout out KeyCode and you know, them bringing in a server for us that we're going to be installing uh, next month, which uh, that's going to be an Evo server by SNS that comes with a share browser MAM that's going to be fantastic for us for logging all of that metadata information. And right now, a lot of that's living in spreadsheets, right? I've been that intern in a way, typing all that up, right? And leveraging post PAs that we have on our team. Um, 
and you know, try and do that as efficiently as possible. But we need to bring in these technology solutions and having Kiko to do that has been you know, fantastic to help us with that technology. Um, but not only on the kind of like MAM front, you know, this is going to be more of an on-prem tool for us, but also getting to a cloud-based dam too where we can really leverage some of those AI tools, you know, connect that with cloud storage like AWS um, and just make this easier on us too so we don't have as much manual labor going into it. And one of the good things is, you know, an Evo, a share browser will exchange metadata with, with Adobe, with, yep. with Premiere. So if you've got stuff from Sensei and you've got stuff from other sources, all of a sudden it ends up falling over and it ends up in your, in your Adobe project and it ends up in your asset management tracking. So that's the thing, we, if it just slowly, if it just gets there, we've done it once, that's the beautiful thing. Automating the movement of the metadata along with the data, that, that I think is going to be critical as we, as we go, for, go forward. So speaking of going forward, uh, virtual environments. It's transformed what we do. Um, a practical set in an LED volume. How have the lines between production and post-production blurred together? Yeah, um, one of the things I love about virtual production is that it's um, a problem-solving tool. And so we approach it with our clients as, yes, it's fun and it's cool and it's new, but the purpose of using virtual production or shooting with a virtual environment should be to solve a problem that your production has. So it might be that you need to shoot in four different locations in one day and you can't physically do that. Um, but another reason that we find often that works for clients is that their post-production timeline is just way too short for anything that could normally be done in a traditional production. That might be because the talent is only available a week before delivery. That happens a lot in advertising. And so virtual productions, using virtual environments, opens up those solutions for that so that you don't have to sacrifice the creative in order to meet the production demands. Um, but what that means is that we can turn around post really quickly. Um, but a lot of that happens because we move a lot of that post-production workflow earlier in pre-production. So the old saying that we all hate of fix it in post, it doesn't exist in our virtual world. We tell people you have to change your mindset to fix it in pre. And those creative decisions need to be decided early on. They, in order to build these virtual environments, they need to be locked before cameras start rolling. So, you know, we work with educating our clients and helping them through this new sort of workflow to have those creative decisions made um, before cameras start rolling while we're building the virtual environments. And in turn, the beauty of it is that by the time we get to post, things are really streamlined and you can move really quickly because the client has seen everything, and there's no surprises as a traditional production normally would have. So, you know, as we're building the virtual environments, we're sharing along with them. They see the process, they approve it, they make the changes. If there's something that's not working in the script or the storyline, we've got to figure it out before while we're in that pre production. And then the other beauty is that on set, 
um, as opposed to a maybe traditional green screen shoot where you're kind of on the set with them and like, okay, now imagine there's a window over here and the talent's gonna look out the window. There's none of that anymore. The window is actually there and they see it and the talent sees it and then in Video Village, all your clients see exactly what it looks like because it's there on the LED wall. And so when we get to post-production, it's really just picking the best takes for performance. There's not a lot of surprises and we can trim that post-production workflow timeline down a lot in a place where you maybe had six, eight, 20 rounds of reviews for the client to look and change and make something different because it's not what they imagined. We really get it down to one, maybe two reviews. Um, and it can happen simultaneously with production. So I'm actually right now in the middle of a production slash post-production workflow that's happening at the same time because I have a shoot that just wrapped this morning in the UK and the DIT on set loaded up all the camera files to Lucid and I woke up, sat down with my editor, pulled down those camera takes, which our director was able to go in and label on Lucid what they wanted. And by the time I leave here, hopefully, my editor has a cut done. And we're gonna send it out tonight back to the director to look at it in 24 hours. Um, and it all is gonna deliver, by the grace of someone better higher than me, on Wednesday, um, a final delivery. And we believe that's gonna be possible because the client saw the virtual environments, knows exactly what they got. They were on the shoot in the UK this morning, saw all of the takes. The ones that they approved are going into the edit and tomorrow when they wake up, they're gonna see a full edit that has no surprises. Fix it in the now. Yeah. <laughs> Fix it in the right now. Um, any other thoughts on virtual environments? I just would add to it that for people that aren't that familiar with virtual environments, it, you know, when you watch the final pixel reel, you saw it said like, say goodbye to green screen. I thought that was a good line. Um, and what, what you touched on is, is how the work flows and why it is superior in all those regards. What I would also just add to that, if you're not familiar with it, is that it looks better because it's actual light. And so it's light projecting, and so reflections and backlighting and front lighting is realistic. I start, one of my first jobs was using like Primat keyers and spill suppressors and trying to get that stuff to look good. And we got used to making green screen look good, but as soon as you go to physical environments and the rim light reacts properly, it's, it's, it's just different. It's just not the same animal. And so I think the value is in speed and quality. Absolutely. I'll add the um, quickest adopters to this um, production form are cars, car commercials, because put a car in front of LED wall and it just looks sexy. It is so, you cannot make it look that good on a green screen. Everything is reflected the way it, it needs to look. Um, trying to make a car look like it's moving on a green screen is never really gonna fool anyone that knows what they're looking at. But with, and then you have such a huge post process of trying to put that reflection to match in the car hood. And with virtual production, that's all happening in real time. 
what you're playing on that LED wall is going to reflect on um, the car. And it's a big reason why the Mandalorian picked the virtual production as their style, because his whole suit of armor was reflective. And so that was the only way that they could do that and not have a two years worth of <laughs> post cleanup to do. Um, and also another thing of the, um, the practical set adding that part in as part of the virtual production is a big part of selling the illusion that you're doing because what virtual production and virtual environments allow you to do is um, create parallax with the camera. And so and that's part green screen can never really do because you're putting it in later. Um, but with it in a virtual environment, the camera is moving and the LED wall, um, the virtual environment that's on the LED wall is moving alongside with that camera. So your DP has a lot of flexibility to move and have that environment move with it and then put a practical set on that and it's hard to tell that you're not shooting it in real life. I think all of us found out that The Mandalorian was done in, in volume after we saw the first season, right? I did, from their behind the scenes. Yes, yeah. <laughs> we found out afterwards. Yeah. No one knew. We watched it and we didn't think that there was anything unusual about it. Oh, they must have, uh, I wonder where they shot that. Yeah, in the middle of a pandemic. Exactly, <laughs> so that, that's the thing. They, 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 they made it work, um, it works a lot better and it pulled it over on all of us, didn't it? Yeah. Got me. All right. Um, let's move. You. Oh, I wanted to ask. I bet uh, actors also like working in that environment a lot more than a green screen, right? Absolutely. Yeah. The yeah. same reason I was speaking of clients that not having to imagine the window mm -hmm. that is over there. It's the same for actors and talent. You yeah. get a better performance from them because they're in it. They're in the environment. It reminds me of hearing that a uh, Sir Ian McKellen cried on the set of The Hobbit because it was all in front of a green screen. Don't make that guy cry. <laughs> <laughs> also, it makes shooting at the South Pole much easier, I would think. Oh, yeah. A little warmer. Yeah. <laughs> a little warmer. <laughs> um, getting into uh, the, the heart of what we're all used to in, in terms of post, video and finishing, the, the edit suites and the editing process. What changes have we seen at the desk in the last couple years? Austin, you want to grab that one? Yeah, I'll take that one. Um, I know that our guests here are Avid and Adobe, but I do see lots of younger editors uh, you know, moving over to Resolve. Not because they want to necessarily, but it's, it's free. So we do a lot of social media at our company, and so we hire these young people, these uh, shooter-editor combos, you know, who can do something very quickly and turn it around. And I say, okay, uh, I'm gonna get you a Premiere license. They said, oh, uh, I don't know it. <laughs> and it's tough for me because I don't really know how to support that should they have uh, technical issues. So I, I do want to take a class on using Resolve for offline editing. I think it'll be good. Um, ultimately, I'd rather not. <laughs> but, you know, that's the industry. It continually evolves. Um, you know, these kids, they, they can't just pirate Final Cut Pro 7, you know. Uh, uh, the cyber police are going to get them. But uh, <laughs> so that's one thing I've seen. But also, uh, you know, uh, with remote editing, um, you know, you said uh, changes at the desk. Oh, there are just less desks now, you know. We have uh, 50 workstations, 38 of them are in a data center that are being connected to via jump desktop. We have about 12 that are on-prem, um, only two of which are being used. 
So, you know, because editors, they, they really like working from home. And, uh, you know, I can, I can tell that they probably don't care, take care of their own edit base, or some of them, because they, uh, they trash my desktops with my remote computers. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it, it does make it easy to maintain from an IT standpoint, because you have, you know, our data centers, they have Mac minis and Mac studios. And, you know, for IT, it's like, oh, I know what the issues are with that computer. I can, I can fix that. Um, rather than having to go um, figure out what's going on with an end user's, um, you know, a hackintosh that they have at their house, you know, uh, try fixing one of those. Um, but editors, they do like working from home. It gives them a lot more flexibility. And I think that they don't like, you know, always having directors and producers in their ears telling them to make it pop. <laughs> and so, but it does, it does make it hard, uh, makes it hard for a company like us sometimes because we do want to have that collaborative environment. We, we like that. It's really about finding a happy medium. I tell them, all right, you can work from home, but like, if we feel like the cut's going slow, you got to come in and sit with our producer. And so we have on-prem, like, VIP edit suites for that. Um, That's like the principal's office. Yeah, yes. there we go. Yeah. Just no corporal punishment, not today. So we're going to go back, and we're going to make that joke 10 frames funnier. Okay. So Make it pop a little better. Make it pop a little make more. <laughs> um, any other thoughts about what's changed at the desk? No, I think I can add to just Resolve being a really big part of that. You know, I took a Resolve class through Key Code and was very helpful and learned how to do some of the editing, some of the color. Um, definitely encourage all of you to do that as well and was helpful because like Austin said, we have more and more editors coming in that want to use that piece of software and more and more content that's just turnkey going right to social right away and a really quick deliverable and just needs to get out of the house. And so, you know, Resolve seems to work for that. It's affordable um, and easy to set up too. So, um, yeah, just want to touch on that. The one, one thing I can say about editorial tools is... I learned how to edit on an RM440. It's a linear controller. It was made by Sony. It didn't do a whole heck of a lot. <laughs> so I needed to know about story. So the tool set, the tools are going to advance as we keep going on, and there's much cooler stuff that's you know, just around the corner. Um, it's, the best thing is to learn everything you can about all the tools possible so that you know, the industry changes, you're right there with it. You don't get left behind. Um, one of the other things I've seen, and, and I've had two conversations earlier tonight about, is what's changed at the desk is it's not with everybody else. How are people getting their next gigs? How do you, you're not in with folks all the time, talking to them and, and interacting, and they don't know really who you are. They, they may know your work, they may know your name, your little box on the, on the, on the, on the, on the screen, but how do they? How do you get the next gig lined up at, by making those you know interactions? Because we all know that this business isn't about what you know. It's about it's not really about who you know. It's about who knows you, and that that's that's one of the things I think has changed a lot. That we need to, you know, like this. We're all here tonight being social. That's that's one of the things that we haven't been able to do for the last three years, even in work environments. All right, I'll get off my soapbox. I want to say that uh, the answer to your question is social media. Uh, I see lots of editors, especially like younger ones, who they have a huge following, and that raises their clout level in the clout economy. And they, they get jobs that way without ever having to attend events like these. You know, 
Uh, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty interesting. So with social media, you can work remotely, uh, never meet someone face to face, but then be working for them the next day. <laughs> um, any other thoughts? All right, we can move along. Um, shared storage, network, and cloud. Um, let's move to our machine room and our stack of shared storage. Maybe that machine room is in someone else's data center. Uh, what challenges and trends are you seeing in this area? Michael, you want to jump off? Well, that we one? end up with, uh, you know, everybody, everybody here is using centralized cloud storage on some level because if you have, if you use a Google Sheet, right, and you use a Microsoft Word uh, document or whatever, it's not local to your device anymore. You don't understand that, right? You're not going to use a native app. You're using some Google Cloud or something like that. So this is the same case with photos. Your email is done this way. So we're all using some cloud centralized tools. Where that works today very conveniently is with documents and photos because they're small. And so that makes the most sense that these things get adopted by consumers and by creatives really quickly in those areas. So the question is, how are we going to follow that train of thought to data centers? And, and, and what is that going to look like? Um, I sort of touched on it a moment ago, but I believe that 10 years from now, computers won't even have operating systems. This idea that we have to buy the most expensive computer for how fast it is won't make sense in a decade. Because you'll never be able to pack more power in a laptop than in a data center, which you could throw any number of cores, millions of cores at computations. And all you're doing is taking that data center and all you need to do is present it on a screen in front of you. You don't have to crunch it locally, you just have to see the results of the arithmetic. So operating systems, I think, will essentially go away and the idea of like buying the newest, latest, greatest computer, especially when it comes to how much storage it has, will be totally foreign and what you'll be doing is using a computer, a laptop, or a tablet, and all the computation is done remotely. And so it means that somewhere over the next 10 years, we're going to have to figure out how to monetize that, how you monetize that, how we get a cut of that, or how we make it affordable. And uh, the result, though, should be uh, a lower barrier to entry for people to be able to do really complex things. So like Final Pixel's computations and stuff and the Unreal Engine computation, that stuff's hard and, and some of that rendering takes a while. And uh, it's not all real time or it might not really be real time at certain frame rates and things like that. That's gonna be easy eventually. And then you won't have to have as much on-prem uh, network processing or storage. So I think, um, again, I'm always, I'm never worried about today's problems. And I, that's not because I'm foolish, there's a lot of great people, KeyCode being one of them, that's really good at worrying about today's problems. I'm trying to have a hand on the wheel of steering it towards a tomorrow that I want to be a part of or I want, I think we should all go. And so my career has been focused on trying to just steer the ship and I'm just one hand of many on this big wheel, but always trying to push us towards a place that makes sense in the long term because we can change that. But it's really hard to change things today and so we need uh, reliable solutions that get people up and running right now, and then we got to figure out how to do this. I don't have it all figured out by any means, but I really believe that uh, computational editorial and uh, automation and centralization is where all of this is uh, in, I would say it is a technological certainty that this is where it's going to go. 
um, how we all get there and how we deploy it is going to be at different phases. Um, and that's where we all have an opportunity to kind of, in a way, vote on how we want that to work. And how do you vote? You buy stock in the companies you like and not in the ones you don't, or you buy the products that you like and don't buy the products you don't, or you take a risk and invest in products you think are emerging um, and uh, focus on that. Because when you, when you do that, you're voting with your, your trade, and that helps those companies keep moving forward and, 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 and help lead. We actually, as a community, have the ability. This was something I learned early on. When I came in and had these crazy ideas, people said, that's not the industry standard. And I was like, well, who is this standards committee? Like, Where are these? Who is that? Right? And I want to meet them, and I want to beat them up. Right? But what I realized is we are the industry standard. It, it really is our industry that decides what standards are. And there isn't a committee that is like faceless. It's not some like, you know, eyes wide shut group. It doesn't look like that. It is really just all of us making a decision collectively. And so we can decide what standards we want and we can focus on those. And we just have to be kind of aligned on where we want to go. And then that eventually becomes a standard. And, I, and if you're listening closely to the panel tonight, some of the things that you said are not standards today, and I, there's hints of things that I, I would absolutely put my money on knowing there'll be standards someday. And so that's a good opportunity to become a master of that craft early. Yep, the, the technology isn't standard. Some of the stuff we have around the technology, like I talked about taxonomy earlier mm -hmm. and how we handle data, if we standardize that, guess what? That would make things so much easier. We're focused our standards on things that we feel that we've got a better sense of control of, but no. Tagging stuff correctly when it comes in out of the field, we can do that. Uh, we, we know we can do that. Um, any other thoughts on shared storage, um, network, well, cloud? Yeah, I, I can just mention that, um, you know, like Michael said, like a lot of the content that's in the cloud right now are documents, small files like that, et cetera. And for us, you know, some of our longer format shows or documentary features take a lot of content. This is going to be 100 terabytes plus, and it's very expensive to keep that in the cloud. You know, we have LeBron backing our company, and uh, but we only have so much money, right? And uh, that's why we still work with a lot of on-prem storage. And so looking at our, um, you know, our server room, we've got a true NAS, we have an Avid Nexus, we have a Jellyfish server, we're bringing in an Evo, right? So it's tons of shared storage. And while we need to you know, move towards going to the cloud, we're still backing up to LTO tape. And ideally, we want to move away from that, and it's very labor intensive. Um, but that's something where we need to kind of wait for some of this to get a little bit more affordable um, for us to be able to do that. And But that's something next couple of years, you know, we're going to be moving to all cloud. And, you know, that's a big part of what I'm trying to architect at the Spring Hill Company is what does that look like for 2023, 2024? Um, you know, how do we get, you know, budgets around cloud storage as well with egress fees, which can be tough. Um, but that's something we're, you know, we're trying to futurize as much as possible. And I would add privacy is a conversation that has to happen within that also. Lots of clients, you know, we work with the content that they're either providing us for post-production or we're shooting for them. Privacy is a huge issue for them. And so that's just a conversation that has to go hand in hand with cloud storage. And 
you know, the comfort level being pushed on for them. On, on folks, and, and th this is a conversation I, I end up having quite a bit with people. Um, it's really more an educational project because most cloud providers are more secure than your typical on-prem machine room. Or FedEx. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so th there's, a, there's a lot of lapses in, your, in, your, in, in the workflows that are out there today. I remember sending out for extremely high-end episodic television, sending out things to VFX houses in encrypted drives, and we sent the password under a separate, separate cover, and what I got back was an XFAT open drive. It was been reformatted. You removed, removed all of the security and just sent it back to me in the open. And they knew what they were supposed to, to do in terms of what I was supposed to get back, but it just didn't happen. So if you've got it all in a cloud, usually the only time you have a breach of cloud is when it's an inside job. <laughs> Someone is an, an unhappy camper, and guess what? They can, you know, that big stack of drives I saw earlier today, just pull up the car and load them up. <laughs> I mean, it's the same, same concept. All right. Um, Moving into the remote and hybrid kind of world, you know, I don't want to see the, say the P word because I'm tired of saying the P word, but it changed a lot of things. Um, when, the, when the P word happened, how did you all go? How did you all go to either a remote, a full remote, or a hybridized workflow to let people, you know, those editors who like editing at home, get started with that? I mean, at, at first, you know, the first like month or so of the pandemic, I was delivering them hard drives. And as you guys can imagine, when you have more than one editor on a project, it becomes a, a big mess. It's like, oh yeah, just upload your Premiere file to a Dropbox every night, it'll be fine. Uh, so eventually, yeah, you know, we, we did some research. We found that Jump Desktop, Teradici, these services, uh, they had to perfect their technology very quickly. I, I want to say that during the pandemic, uh, technology for remote uh, post-production advanced like 15 years. You know, I could be exaggerating a little bit. But also vaccine science advanced about 15 years in three years, because you know, we are all part of this together. Um, but yeah, you know, it worked really well for us because when you have a bunch of computers in a data center um, attached to shared storage, uh, you don't really need a strong internet connection for the end user to work, it's essentially a live stream that you're interacting with. And, um, you know, I, I agree with, with Michael here that like, it's all gonna be cloud and like, you know, none of the computing is going to be done like, you know, on your local device at, at some point. Uh, one thing that has me less optimistic, I'm, I'm sort of going off topic, I, forgive me, but uh, is that I think that we can only go to a truly like ubiquitous cloud society if strong, internet connections, data connections are also ubiquitous. And I don't think that the private sector has really found a solution for that, you know? I still have editors who I, you know, don't want to work with because they live in a neighborhood that has only one option for ISP. And that option's, and that option's really bad. I'm not going to name names, but it's what I have. Spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> you said it, not me, friend. <laughs> yes. I'll say the S word, not the P word. <laughs> there we go. And so, yeah, like, I hope that in, in 10 years that we can get to a point where, like, our, our industry says, hey, we're, we're lagging behind uh, South Korea, we're lagging behind China when it comes to internet infrastructure. 
we, by now, we, if we wanted to, we could have had satellite internet everywhere, but we don't. Why? I think you guys can figure that part out. But anyway, I've gone really off topic. But yes, you know, in a perfect world, there would be no hard drives, uh, and any editor can work at the bus stop. That's, that's the future that I want to see here. Does that answer your question? <laughs> it does. <laughs> so it's how you get there, how you got there, and where you, where you think you're going to go. Because the next question actually has a tagline of looking forward. So oh, we, yeah. we got there that's early. One then. That's fine. Yeah. It's always good to go ahead of the curve. Uh, any other thoughts on uh, remote tools? I'll share. Uh, Final Pixel, we're actually a bit unique in that we were born out of the pandemic. So um, the owners of the company started it because of the pandemic and looking at virtual production as a resource of how to continue production with the pandemic in mind. So we're all completely remote um, and global. Um, so outside of just the technical part, as a producer, my biggest workflow issue is um, time zones <laughs> and working across multiple time zones with people all across the world and keeping everyone on the same page, communicating well and moving projects forward throughout the day coming from Australia and then the UK and then the East Coast and the West Coast and then back around the world again for the next day. Um, and for that, it's a lot of, you know, shared storage things and cloud-based technologies are huge for that to be able and, and good project management so that everyone's on the same page and we can pass off versions onto each other and know we're all working on the same path moving forward instead of someone wasting a couple hours because they were just on the wrong version of something and didn't have the ability to confirm that. Um, but as a producer, for me, it's all about communication and really, really good communication across the team. Um, I'm someone who believes in over-communication in the best way of, you know, I don't do a service to the next person who's picking up after I've gone to sleep if I've left them confused about something. Then they're going to waste their whole day and the project goes off course. So with our teams, we're always about communication, making sure everyone's understanding and on the same page, um, working remotely but staying connected as much as possible. And sometimes that's just via Discord or making sure WhatsApp, whatever it is that you have that open line of communication. And um, a lot of times for me, it's like hopping on a Zoom just to talk through things that maybe if going around and it would take 10 emails to go around, let's hop on a Zoom and talk about it in 10 minutes and get it over with and make sure that I don't waste your time, you don't waste my time, and we keep the project going. Interesting, follow the sun editorial. I've always heard that in terms of a support thing. People say, oh, we've got follow the sun support, but your editorial team, yeah. Yeah, the people you need to talk to, they may have you know, gone to bed three hours ago. Absolutely, yeah, so, we've got on our current project, our VFX team is in the UK, and so I have a meeting with them every morning where they give me an update on what they've done for the day and leave me with action items to take with my editor, and then we'll leave at the evening with making sure they've got new shots for them to work on the next day. And it's a 
cycle that works really lovely when everyone's on the same page and understanding each other. It is not lovely if no one's on the same page. So you're handing them data and then you're handing them information about the data. Mm-hmm, yeah. I believe that's called metadata. <laughs> mm. Oh, look, we've come full circle. <laughs> um, cool, any other thoughts on um, on uh, the remote side of things? I, I, would, I would have to say also for folks that are running like a, a full jump setup, you're, you are your own data center. So you've already broken the paradigm of the people are down the hall. A lot of edit bays I've walked into, they're, you know, people are using them for storage, physical stuff. Oh, put all the chairs in there, edit two's not in use. So the, the, the paradigm's already been broken in terms of how we think about work in post-production. So the next iteration of that, when we move that data center to off our premises, because we don't want to pay the real estate anymore, that's, I think, the next piece that's coming down the road. And after that, as you know, the, the costs of cloud democratize, uh, we'll be able to further move out into the cloud. I think that also covers the looking forward section, does it? Doesn't it? Um, any other thoughts, I guess, on looking forward? It, what, if you got the crystal ball out, where do you see things in three years? For me, three is a little, well, it, it's, it's uh, I think it's pretty obvious when I say this, it, 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 but, but it'll take a little bit more than three to fully materialize. But everybody's talking about generative AI right now, right? Everybody's probably tried mid-journey or chat GPT or something like that. And we see the, there's probes out there like, okay, there's something there. Everyone knows there's something there. Well, what is it going to be? And uh, my prediction to what that's going to be is a combination of really empowering the, the top of the line creative people to have more power than they've ever had, which that power is where it belongs. Creative control is what, uh, what lack of creative control is what breaks productions down. It's what hurts when, when, when key stakeholders don't have the creative control and they get bogged down by not understanding what, what they're trying to create or how it's actually created. What ChatGPT, and Discord's uh, or uh, 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 mid-journey and things like that will do is effectively today they're they're generally generating an electronic asset, right? And so they're creating an electronic asset. But what we'll be able to see happen is it's going to be able to be modifying existing assets. Today the early ones are going to be stills, but then that'll apply to motion. So when you can apply it to motion, it means that you can shoot a shot. And you could say, and a creative doesn't need to understand how Python works or something like that. They could just type in text, I want it to rain. And it'll just generate water. And I want puddles on the ground. And it'll just take your footage and it'll put puddles on the ground. I want it to be snowing. And no, I want it to be a blizzard. And it'll start rendering that in your footage. And with cloud computing, eventually that rendering will be instant. And it means a creative can start really being creative with what they're doing. It means that they have the ability to test ideas and feel what they want to do before they have to commit to it. Monisha talked about fix it in pre. And what this generative AI will ultimately do is it will take pre-production and it will just elongate it through the entire process. 
It'll just happen at any stage you want. You could be mid-edit, and I know you're going to think this is a jerk thing to do, but a director could just change the time of day of the footage that you're editing in the middle of the edit, but that's where the power belongs. And the person ultimately responsible for the vision that they're trying to do, instead of having to say, well, we need to take these things, re-export them, and then redo it with a blizzard now. That's what people do a lot. And the directors, a lot of times, don't have the control of that. Or they have to make a decision prematurely, and they're stuck with it. And so this generative AI, learn it, understand it, start to understand how it works. And don't think of it about, like, this is going to replace my job and stuff. Like, there's always going to be that person. They're, they're always that person. But this is where we're going to be able, yeah, this is where we're going to be able to give creative control at a world that we've never, ever, ever had before. And I've heard people say things like that when Mini-DV was born, which is what catapulted me out here from the Midwest, was Mini-DV. It, it, it basically gave creative control to people that never had it before. This is like times a thousand, right? And I love the idea that someone with no, virtually no money can shoot something and generate anything they can think of, and it's going to be almost free. <laughs> uh, that's going to create... Spielberg's all over the world. Yeah. And a ton of content. So plenty of, mm -hmm. plenty of things to watch. Um, plenty of things to watch. Plenty, plenty of things crap. The, the funny thing, though, is you brought up the, we turned the snow into a blizzard. Where there, you know, there's three people who lived in Chicago here. I, I just don't understand. You, you're missing it, aren't you? It's January. <laughs> we're, we're used to something specific. Um, so let's look forward also into the, the, the television and feature industry, more about episodics. Um, what impacts do you think the streamers have had on workflow, the way content gets developed, uh, and the technology stacks that are in your, in your creative workflow, whether that's on-prem or hybrid or in a cloud? Yeah, I think uh, the streamers are really going for prestige these days. Or at least, like you know, they're at the crest of that. You know, this whole golden age of streaming. It used to be, you know, like most of our content is unscripted. It used to be that we could shoot in 4K and we we would just deliver in 1080p. No one had a problem with that, and it's great because with 4K, with delivering 1080, you have the latitude to crop in, pan and scan. It makes the job easier. Now, to get that same latitude, you have to shoot in 8K because you know they're going to want UHD, HDR, and <laughs> you know it. Definitely is more of a burden on our, on our data centers. It's more of a burden uh, on you know, our finishing team to the point where we, we have a projector in the screening room. We're going to turn that into a finishing suite uh, because more and more streamers are going to be asking for higher quality content. Even if it's just a talk show, they, they still want it in uh, 4K you know, HDR. Um, and that's only going to, it's only going to creep up from there. You know, they said that, oh, like, well, with uh, 4K, that's when the industry is going to stabilize. How many uh, uh, pixels can your eyes proceed, uh, perceive? I was like, oh, I don't know, but, you know, we're going to find out. So <laughs> best be ready for that. But, you know, that has uh, compelled us to start bringing these things in-house so we could capture back costs because, you know, uh, finishing uh, out-of-house, uh, you know, with HDR it can be a pretty penny. So just trying to save that. Any other thoughts on the way they've impacted? I'll just say if you want to see an industry that's embracing virtual production, it is the streamers. Because uh, if you try to get a LED studio in the LA area, uh, they are mostly 
taken up by Netflix, and Amazon just built their gigantic one out in Culver City. So they are 100% industry that's um, embracing this model. I think they're seeing the um, cost savings of doing it at scale. And for them who are you know, churning out a lot of content and need to turn out a lot of content, you can shoot episodics and on a stage in a fraction of the time than you could out in the real world. So they are definitely driving the virtual production industry. So producing content faster, producing content with higher quality, and producing content with legs. I remember back in the light iron days, I sat in a conference room and someone from Netflix told me that their material was going to last until the heat death of the universe. It's a pretty, it's a pretty big statement, pretty bold statement, and there, the whole thing there is if you shoot at the highest possible level today, you can reformat later into whatever deliverable is happening at that moment. And you know all the discussions we've had about, well, your eyes can't resolve that, it's too small a screen, no one seems to care. And that, that's the thing that I feel that they've driven forward for, for us. It's kicked up the quality level to a, a point that we don't necessarily understand and basically we're kind of living in a proxy world at this point, even delivering it 4K um, because they've got that data somewhere. Actually, it's in, it's in an AWS cloud, but they've got it and eventually they're gonna reformat all this stuff and it's gonna come back out and it's gonna look even better and, and, and more, you know, more cool when it does come back out. A lot of it's also uh, marketing too, you know. You see a TV on Black Friday, it says, oh, this is an 8K TV. You know, they're gonna sell more TVs. Streamers trying to compete together. Oh, we can do a, a 8K HDR, so you should keep your subscription with us. You know, there, there's a certain point where like, it doesn't make any logical sense to keep continuing, but when you're talking about like a market economy, I think we're gonna be seeing that for a while. Yeah, but I, I also feel that like the what you were touching on was the, what you were touching on. You didn't use the word, but the word I would use when we're talking about higher resolution capture and and future proofing is super sampling. And and you had mentioned like there are these kind of people out there that want like to get out their protractor and try to prove to me that you can't see certain amount of resolution, which is not the point. The point is that the quality lasts longer if you shoot higher quality. A perfect example in in 2019, a documentary came out called Apollo 11 which was a, 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 a remaster of 65 millimeter film documentary of the Apollo 11 launch. If you watch this in 4K, when you watch the opening shot of this, it looks like a period piece because everybody looks like they're from 1969, but the quality of the photograph is modern. And they, someone had the intuition in 1969 says, we should not shoot this on 16 or 35. We should shoot this on 65 millimeter because it's freaking the moon. And so the idea that people <laughs> had that idea, it, it pays it forward. And I'm telling you, watch Apollo 11's documentary and you, you, you'll be floored. You'll be like, it, it looks like a reenactment, but it's not. And I think it, it matters that we care about super sampling so that our stuff that we do create simply lasts longer. Now, if you're making known disposable content, that's okay. Some people are like, should I shoot everything in 8K? 
Absolutely not. Because there's disposable content, and there's content that has short lifespans, or you knowingly are aware this isn't crucial. But you talked about LeBron James, you know, someday there'll be some catalog celebration of his life or whatnot. You, you don't want that to look like a home video, right? And so people will want to invest in that. And so these are the types of things that spending the money on a high fidelity and archiving it properly will, it will is, is always been an important attribute of our business and we must continue to, to represent that. And that's been one of the things that's also interesting. We're in the era of disposable content. We didn't used to be. Mm. When you shot film, you kept it. And I mean, the, the big universal fire several years ago, that, that kind of changed our thinking about that. And I, I personally, I know I've deleted, you know, dailies material that no longer exists. It's nowhere on the planet. It just doesn't exist. So there's a point at which in history where we had everything, now we don't. So eventually someone's gonna figure out, maybe we wanna figure out a way to keep that stuff too. Because I can go back in, someone can go back in and recut. That may be the other thing later on down the line, you know, get all the footage from a movie that was shot. All the all the film masters, yes. But get get all the original material back and recut the film yourself. You didn't like the way that looked. You can have you can have the Jeff cut if you got the time to do it. And the rights. And the rights. Well, I mean that that could be the other thing in the future. Hey, we'll we'll give you this. Here's the here's the stuff. Here's the website. Cut your own version of, of, of this movie. It's interesting stuff. Um, which gets us to inspiration. So when you, you think about people who are uh, future creators, future engineers, what recommendations do you have for folks that are getting out of school or getting into this business to get their foot in the door? Let's start with you. We'll go all the way down the line this way. Okay. Um, I actually definitely speak from a producer standpoint, but I always recommend um, befriending every technical person you work with <laughs> and to a point where you can ask them questions to get to a solid understanding of the process. I think... Looking back at my career, I am only where I am today because I had really kind editors and media managers and post-production supervisors who would answer my dumb questions that I had and help make sure that I understood what the process was. Um, and that made me a better producer because I could go into every situation and understand what I was asking for, what it was going to mean for the person I was asking it of. And um, a lot of my role as a producer is um, managing the client and making sure they understand what they're asking for, what it's gonna take to do it. Um, and so I think for all young people, I think sometimes for young people, there's this mentality of like, you've got to go out and pretend you know everything and don't show anyone that you're still learning. And I think that is just the wrong way to go about it and to really find those comfort areas and ask those questions and make sure you're going into every situation 
continually learning. Like I am still asking questions of my editors and media managers and things as the world continues to change. And they're staying abreast on it much faster than I am. Um, and I don't need to know how to do their job. That's never my goal is to do their job, but it certainly is to understand what their job is and um, how to support that from a producer standpoint. Um, so yeah, just ask the dumb questions. If you don't get a good response, find us someone else who's got more time and ask them, um, but really make sure you stay um, in step with what's happening and that you actually understand it and you're not just like taking information from one person and trying to deliver it to another person without a fundamental understanding. Always keep learning. Always learn. Josh. Yeah, I think my answer is really to, you know, to be bold and ask questions and reach out to people in the industry. I, you know, I'm still young and new to the industry in some ways, but I think back to being a 19-year-old and being in film school and uh, this was back in Chicago and I had the opportunity to uh, visit a post facility that did color, finishing, mix, editorial, all of that under one umbrella. Um, this Optimist Post, if you guys have heard of them, in Chicago. Um, they also have an office in Santa Monica here in LA. Um, and so I really got my feet wet in that place and got a chance to you know, see their edit base, see their color suites, and it was all things that were very new to me at the time, being very fresh in film school. And I had the opportunity on the tour to talk to a gentleman by the name of Glenn Pasek. And I asked him, hey, are you guys taking interns, right? And I don't think anyone else in my class at the time asked that at all. He passed that along to the recruiter that was at the post house. Um, and they reached out to me right away and they appreciated that enthusiasm, you know? And um, I think at that time I was like a very nervous and shy 19 year old, you know? So it was a big deal for me to reach out and try to you know, put myself out there. And it turned into a great opportunity there. I got to do AE work. I got to intern and go get lunches for advertising people, which was a lot of fun, right? Um, but you know, got to you know, really see what the business is all about. And uh, you know, it's brought me to LA and you know, I'm here now. So I think being bold, asking questions, networking, um, you know, and getting to know people is, is really key. Reach out and touch base. Michael. Every type of product, whether it's sports or, or if you think about if it's a fashion or music or technology, it goes through three phases. We all know these phases. It's, it's, it's a fad. And if it's good enough, it'll become trendy. And if it graduates out of trendy, it can become a standard. And that's sort of the pathway that, that things go through. And a lot of things never get out of the fad stage. They just stay there. And what we all wish we could know is what fads are gonna become trends, are gonna become standards. Because if we knew that ahead of the time, we'd all dive right into the standards. Tell me which one to bet on, and I'd go for it. We don't have that luxury. They're all, it's all kind of murky. So the trick is to be able to identify what's gonna become trendy, and then when it's gonna become a, a standard. And so I think we'd be hard pressed. You'd be hard pressed to find a technology today that's a standard. You'd be hard pressed to find it and trace it back to the people that were early adopters of that and see them as failures. If you can name a standard that you see today everywhere, find the people that were part of it early on, they all did well. 
something happened in their life, something happened in their tech or their story or their company or their business or their, the, the, the projects they made. And so I've always uh, tried to convince people that my advice is to challenge the status quo. And by challenging the status quo, you find yourself identifying those fads and trends a little bit better. And as artists, we're supposed to be trendsetters. I was talking to someone last week who really annoyed me, who said, Michael, your technology, you're always making this technology that's unproven. I just call me when it's for sure. That doesn't sound like an artist to me. Tell me when it's perfect. Tell me when it's ready. Artists are supposed to be setting the trends and blazing the trails and being brave about the unknown. And that's where the art of discovery lies, is in the unknown areas of it. And this person, I don't think they're going to make it in that space. They're certainly not going to be rewarded for being conservative. So I think it's imperative that we uh, buck those trends and that we try to identify those and, and take some bets and, uh, and uh, kind of challenge the status quo. Don't settle for less. Mm -hmm. Austin. Yeah, so I, I have different advice for creators and then for engineers. Uh, for creators, uh, I, I know I made a joke earlier about unpaid internships, and that's because uh, you know I was one, and it was a dark experience. And uh, Josh, I believe uh, you were also unpaid too, right? Yeah. Um, my advice for creators is don't don't take those. Uh, don't we? There needs to be a precedent set by creators. It's like your your labor isn't worth nothing, you know. Now. A regular paid internship, uh, yeah, that's that's a great way to get your foot in the door. But you know what I was saying earlier about like uh, social media, it's like you have a, a 4K camera in your pocket. If you're a creator, go create something, uh, put it on a website, put it on your socials. Uh, when I'm looking at uh, resumes, CVs, I, I don't really care where you interned um, because chances are you didn't do much. I took out garbage <laughs> and, and sat in the front door while they 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 shot um, footage inside. Um, so it doesn't really tell me much. I, I want to see what you're able to do. Now, I'm speaking just for careers, of course. You know, like, if you have an opportunity to, like, you know, get an internship, um, you know, as a, as a post-PA, definitely take it. If it's paid, if it's paid, you know, we got to set the standard here. Um, as, for, uh, as for engineers, uh, I, I like engineers who are, are multifaceted. And actually, this advice goes for any, anybody. I, I feel like the industry is going less away from specialists to uh, people who have a unique skill stack. If I'm like talking to an engineer, um, you know, inter interviewing them for a job, and they say that they used to be an assistant editor, I think that's way cooler and way more valuable than an engineer who might have more experience, for example. Um, and also, just in general, I like to work with editors who know how to shoot and vice versa, I think. Editing makes you a better shooter, a better director, so forth. My favorite director to work with in my company, she was an editor for 10 years, then she pivoted. Uh, I have, uh, it's so much easier to work with her. So, you know, di diversify your skill set. Don't do the same thing forever. There's, there's a lot to learn out there. You've earned your diversified skills. You deserve to get paid for them. Mm-hmm, <laughs> exactly. Um, the one thing I, I would say for folks is attitude. I can teach someone technology. I can't teach them attitude. And this is a discussion we have when we're, we're looking at, at resumes. It's like, uh, well, he doesn't, she doesn't, they don't know these things. It doesn't matter. If they've got the aptitude and the, and the hunger and they're, and they're willing to get out there and, and do the deal, then um, 
you know, that, that's something that is priceless. I can teach tech. Other people can teach tech. Because the tech I learned on, we don't do that anymore. <laughs> I, I saw a microphone in the back, which means that... Is it Q&A time? It's Q&A time okay. from, the, from the audience or... Yeah, we, we, okay, so we went a little bit long today. So I'm thinking if you're here in person, I think we'll have people ask questions um, to the people after we wrap up today, if that's okay. But I did want to just take a couple from the online forum, if that's cool. We have a couple live streams on LinkedIn and YouTube. So from James, we, I guess we didn't really get too much into review and, uh, review and approve. So for distributed teams, uh, does the panel prefer an asynchronous review and approve process, or is there still a preference to do it all together in real time and have, and what are the challenges which come with both? Do you want to grab that one? Um, yeah, I, my answer is both. <laughs> Sometimes it depends. Um, if I'm working with my internal teams, I like to do it all together. I think there's um, a benefit to reviewing as a group. Um, I personally like to be able to ask my questions and get a response back, um, which often sometimes changes my opinion of things if I'm critiquing creative in some way. So that's where I think being all together and hearing, getting that immediate feedback is really helpful. Um, on the other side, if it's a client review, um, a lot of times I as a producer will join them in the review because there is information I want to make sure they understand that's coming from the creative team. Right, that they're not just looking at it and start to imagine things in their head. Um, I can walk them through that process and advocate for my team as they're reviewing that creative. Um, but on the other side, I think there's also, again, working with remote teams across different time zones, there is some benefit to the asynchronous reviews um, and being able to keep it going. So I, I think it has, it depends a lot more on the stage of, of what stage we are in the process, if it's of post-production. So if it's kind of early on and it's quick reviews, we'll do it asynchronous and keep it moving. And I can just give my notes. I understand how to look at a rough cut. No, it's not final. Here's what I think. Keep moving. Um, but then I think it's important to come in for those milestone reviews and do it all together and make sure there's that collaboration. Awesome. Any other thoughts on review? Okay. Matt, what else you got? Okay, this is going to be the last one. There was a lot of other questions, but this one, when you guys started talking about people working at home and internet issues, boy, oh, boy, did that, everyone have a bunch of comments on that. <laughs> um, so Renee was kind of asking about, with public cloud, uh, can you spread the footprint across regions that are closer to your global talent, reducing latency? So how do you, how do you balance that in those hybrid, hybrid cloud workflows uh, when you're working with people all across the world? There's, there's a line I use, which usually producers hate. I'm sorry. We can do anything you want, provided you're willing to pay for it. Oh, yeah. So yes, that can be done. It's going to cost you more. You're duplicating your data. We can get you two sets of on-prem storage in different locations. You're duplicating your data. It's going to cost you twice as much. So uh, that, that's, that's my thought on that. Um, that reduces latency in a, in a real easy way. Um, the other thing is, you know, we talked about not settling. You don't have to settle 
for your internet provider most of the time. Sometimes you've got a choice. And uh, we've had conversations with internet providers where we had a client that was located on the west side of LA and the system they were trying to reach was in Playa Vista and it wasn't working because their internet traffic went to Atlanta, hmm. then to Chicago, then to San Francisco, and then down to where it needed to go. So we had to have a conversation with level three support for that provider and tell them that they, we needed to change the way their pathing was. Um, that's, that's an outlier. Uh, a lot of people can have some, some difficulty there. So that's, that's my particular thoughts on that. Other thoughts on? I would say since they're a sponsor, LucidLink, if you haven't really messed with LucidLink, it's really worth exploring. My team uses LucidLink and we do 8K raw files and we have several editors distributed and not a single editor in my company has a drive locally. It's all cloud, it's all cloud, no exceptions. Mm -hmm. And the entire system uh, runs off LucidLink and it's really, really good stuff. Their, their way of doing it is unique. Their IP is all in the way that they can packet things in a very unique way that makes it feel very local. And so your JKL experience, your scrubbing experience feels really good. So highly recommend exploring LucidLink as a tool that um, I endorse as a, as, a, as a satisfied customer. That is a good endorsement. Yeah. Um, <laughs> any other thoughts? Uh, I'm really excited for uh, Nexus Edge to get that going uh, because it's cool that you, know, you can work uh, off the cloud, but uh, if it doesn't work, you can put it on all the put the proxies on a drive. I like that flexibility. So excited for that. So there's there's different ways to flex, and um, you know just depends upon what works for you in terms of time and money. But speaking of time and money, I've been told that we need to wrap up because <laughs> apparently we're spending money somehow. Uh, <laughs> panelists, thank you for joining me today. An audience, thank, thanks for coming out. It's always great to see some folks and get some socialization and you know some libations and some food and it's not something we've done in this room in quite a while. And it's really good to see everyone able to come out. If you got questions about any of the things, if you want to talk about LucidLink, you want to talk about Nexus Edge, we're, we're Key Code Media. We can help you out with those things. Please uh, see one of the Key Code folks around. We probably have these name tags on, uh, and we can help you out. Again, thanks for coming out tonight, and enjoy the rest of your evening. Good job, Austin. Thanks for watching Broadcast to Post. Please make sure to subscribe to the podcast to receive future episodes. Follow Key Code Media on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram to receive news on additional AV, broadcast, and post-production technology content. See you next time, folks. Thanks for watching Broadcast to Post. Please make sure to subscribe to the podcast to receive future episodes. Follow Key Code Media on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram to receive news on additional AV, broadcast, and post-production technology content. 
See you next time, folks.